Welcome to the SASH Podcast, the Society for American Soccer History. I hope you can feel their Scottish accents in there when you read the recollection. It's more likely that they use a version of the game that was played at Princeton. In 1995, a woman who called herself Medi Honeyball formed the British Ladies Football Club. They interviewed him about his whole life. I mean, he just told his story in his own word. Welcome to the Society for American Soccer History SAS session with Matthew Evans, the author of US 94, the World Cup that changed the game. He's uh, calling in from his native North Wales. Uh, founded in 1993, SASH works to promote, facilitate, and disseminate research into the rich history and heritage of soccer in the United States. You can find us on the web at ussoccerhistory.org and on social media with our Facebook and Twitter accounts. If you'd like to join the society, please do so through the Join tab on our website. Matthew is a freelance soccer writer who specializes in the history of the game. He has written extensively on all eras of the beautiful game for various online outlets. Uh, he appears on podcasts and in print, especially These Football Times, wonderful publication, a few of our behind me, uh, and Nutmeg Magazine. David Kilpatrick had a poem in Nutmeg in the last issue. He's a huge fan of soccer nostalgia. Um, I have my New York, New Jersey, you know, uh, Stein right here. So I'm going to make sure he doesn't, you know, get his fingers on that. Um, and uh, he remains, you know, massively into the 1994 World Cup because it's part of his education, having absorbed the yeah. tournament as a teen teenager. We all have those first tournaments uh, that we were introduced uh, to the game. So I, I promised some that I would show off my new shirt. You know, here it is. Uh, logos from the 1930 World Cup all the way to the last World Cup. Uh, but uh, really excited to have uh, Matthew here today to talk about a, a, a World Cup that is near and dear to the society's hearts uh, uh, and minds. We were started in the year before the 1994 World Cup. So our society's DNA is, is very much in that tournament. So over to you, Matt. He'll talk about his book project, and then we're going to open it up for a uh, question and answer session. So thanks for joining us today. And I have to, uh, you know, show off, you know, uh, the book before we pass it over to him, a beautiful uh, cover. Uh, and we'll let you add it, Matt. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, yeah, so I, like you touched on, I started writing as a hobby. Um, just on the history of the game, there's so many interesting players, stories, teams that I think in this modern day now of wall-to-wall, 24-hour -wall, football, you know, it can some of these names and stories can be forgotten. Um, so, yeah, so I started writing for websites and, and, and magazines, went from being a fan of likes of these football times and nutmeg to actually writing writing for them, which was, uh, you know, that, that was beyond my, my wildest dreams, really, when I first started off writing for, you know, various uh, websites. Um, the dream was always to write a book. Um, and obviously the subject matter is, obviously it's very, very important, if not the most important thing. Um, so again, I just looked to the history of the game, my, my own sort of path as a football fan, um, you know, so grow, grew up in North Wales, um, 
my early days was spent on the cop at Wrexham with my dad, um, watching games there. Um, and by the time I got to like my teenage years, I was sort of falling out of love with the game. I was playing other sports, not watching or playing as much football. And then um, the World Cup came around. And on these shores, it was a bit, mm, there's no home nations. England aren't there. Obviously, Wales weren't there. Um, so there was a lot of snobbery from, from these shores, from the media, where, you know, oh, well, there's a World Cup on, but it won't be any good because England aren't in it. Um, but for me, I, I just seen it as an opportunity to enjoy the football and, and pick a team to follow throughout the tournament. And I picked the USA. I had the denim shirt with the stars. Um, I had a nice denim drill top. Um, and yeah, I picked them as my team. And that summer, those those games, it just sort of reignited my love for the game. So when I came to write a book, I looked back at USA 94 and I thought, well, someone's bound to have wrote a, you know, there's bound to have been a book on it. So when I, I'd done some early research, I, I found there was nothing sort of out there that I could see, certainly nothing that had been released in, in the UK. So I'd done some tentative research on the tournament and just all these stories just started popping out. You know, there's there's more to the World Cup than what was going on on the pitch. You know, there was the stories off the pitch even before the World Cup started, you know, the, the power struggle, um, you know, with USSF, you know, getting the bid accepted, then getting the, the tournament on um, through to even, even like I spoke to Professor Trey Rogers, who, who designed the uh, grass to grow in the Silver Dome, you know, even, even stories like that. I, I, I sent chapters off to a couple of friends to like proofread and, that chapter on the on the grass, I, I, I messaged my friend. I said, I've got this, my latest chapter. Can you have a look at it? He said, oh, yeah, what's it about? So I said, oh, it's about the guy who grew the grass in Pontiac Silverdome. And he was like, you're writing a chapter about grass? And I was like, honestly, it's really interesting. I think it's really interesting. So I sent him the chapter and he, he got back to me and he was like, yeah, you're right. It's a really interesting story, you know, and to see how, how it's sort of, pitch technology and things like that, how that sort of changed over the years through, you know, Sapporo, even through to like the Millennium Stadium here in Wales or the Principality Stadium now where, you know, they, they close the roof through to like the Spurs Stadium where they've got the interchangeable pitches and things like that. You know, you've seen that as sort of, that was the birthplace of, you know, the, the modern pitches you see today. Um, so, yeah, so scratching the surface, you see all these other stories sort of come, come to the fore um, and then it was a case of speaking to people that were involved in the tournament, um, you know, whether that was from an organisational standpoint, from playing, from coaching. Um, so this was like February 2020, I got the OK to, to start the book. And then obviously come March time, COVID, it, it really sort of kicked off and there was lockdowns all over the place. So I was reaching out to people, former players and, uh, you know, et cetera, oh, I'm writing this book. Would you be free for an interview? And people are just going, yeah, do you want to do it this afternoon? Because a lot of people were just sitting at home, you know, with, with, with nothing to do. So for, for me, that, that, those first sort of two months of, of the of writing and researching really sort of kicked the book into gear for me because I got quite a lot of interviews done early doors. And I think that sort of gave me a boost, you know, to, to, to just 
crack on with the book and I was writing and writing. I was finishing one chapter straight on to the next. I had all these people lined up to do interviews because said the COVID was great for me, for, for the book, you know, it was, it was just people just, you know, sitting around waiting to, for something to do. So um, Jim Trecker uh, reached out to me on, on uh, Twitter. I got like, a, I got a private message. His, his, his Twitter account didn't have his name on it. So I got a private message saying, um, I can, uh, I can possibly help with the, with, with your book. So I looked at the profile and it only had like a handful of followers and I thought, okay, okay. I'll see, you know, see where this takes me. So I just replied, yeah, okay. How can you help? So he's like, I'm Jim Trecker. I basically help write the bid process and everything, you know, and I can put you in touch with quite a few people. Um, so from there, Jim put me in touch with uh, Tom Meredith, who, again, really helpful, spoke to Tom for, for well over an hour. You know, he put me in touch with uh, Alan Rothenberg and Hank Steinbrecher. Uh, and, and again, you know, they put me in touch with other people and it just sort of all really snowballed from then. How, how it sort of, it all started really from, from just this, getting this message on Twitter from, from a, a random profile that I, I didn't even follow. I didn't, you know, they didn't have the name on it. Um, it. You know, within the space of two months, I think I'd spoke to, yeah, Alan Rothenberg, Hank Steinbrecher, I'd spoke to like three of the players, three of the US players. Um, yeah, so it really sort of snowballed from there. And I think when you're taking on a project like this, I think you need to have those early sort of, um, sort of wins, if you like, the little things that just gives you that boost that makes you think, you know, this is going to be, worthwhile pursuing because obviously it takes over it takes over your life really for, for, for two years you know it, it lived and breathed the, the tournament and even now the book's out doing things like this and uh, doing podcasts and, and and things you know it's it it, it sort of takes over sort of you know it takes over your life but it is a massive it's a massive been a massive part of my life for the last sort of two two and a half years and when I've done podcasts in the past and, you know, a lot of the people I've spoke to, some were born when the tournament started, some were only young and a lot of them don't know about the tournament and they're, you know, they're wanting to know, you know, more backstories and things like that. But obviously speaking to you guys today, you know, you, you, for, for me, you know, you, you guys lived and breathed it, you know, it, this is uh this is great to actually be, you know, with people that hold the, hold the tournament, you know, really close to the hearts, like like I do. You know, it's, it's nice to be in amongst people that uh, that you know love that World Cup and, and still you know think very fondly of it. That's wonderful. Uh, you know, th thanks for you know those reflections and and on the process. Now, I think we're gonna get into some some of the nitty gritty and maybe um, I'm gonna ask the first question because I have the floor, but uh, maybe. What we can do is, as as a preface to your question, maybe say your your relationship to the tournament. You know, maybe you know where you were, what games, or whatever. So I was in New Jersey. We had tickets to every game at Giant Stadium. My mom got the the short uh, straw, and she had to come with me to a Saudi Arabia game, you know, but there was over 50,000 people there. I, I had friends who were working, uh, you know, uh, on the organizing committee uh, at Giant Stadium. I was next to my father for the 
Ireland Italy match, you know, was behind the goal, you know, that, that Ireland scored. Uh, and in the, you know, it was just a, you know, a wonderful experience. It was literally weeks before I got married. Right. So I'm, you know, from there, I'm able to date all the things in my life, 94 married, 98, you know, first child, 2002, second child, 2006, uh, PhD, 10, a book, you know, so, you know, things for me come in, in, in these, uh, you know, four year, uh, increments, but amazing to, to finally have, you know, the world cup, um, in our country. And, and it was great, uh, you know, completely followed, you know, the 90 world cup and, and 82 was probably the first one that I, I had followed, you know, you know, kind of match by match, but one thing, and here's my question, uh, that I've heard describing, you know, a team or a season, you know, one game flows into another game. Uh, if that's true, you know, could we then say one World Cup kind of flows into another World Cup? One of the things I think you do beautifully is, you know, describe 1990 Italy and then flow that into 1994 in the U.S. So, so could you talk about how you saw the relationship between 1990 and 1994 World Cups. Well, 1990. I mean, 1986. I've got, I've got a few memories of. Um, so I was born in 1980. So 1986. I, I've got a few memories of. 1990. I remember more of uh, Gaza's tears, um, Baggio's goal against Czechoslovakia, um, the, the awful final. Um, but then for me, 94. It was. It wasn't my first World Cup, but it was the World Cup where I truly like absorbed everything that was going on. It was cutting newspaper, you know, cutting newspapers up. It was getting wall charts, sticker albums, cards. Uh, for me, it was football and technical. You know, coming from Italian ninety, in those four years, there've been big changes. You know, we'd had the the stadium disasters. We'd had um, obviously the Champions League was was starting up. We'd had the Premier League. Obviously, talking from you know, being a, a, a football fan in Britain, you know, the Premier League had sort of kicked off and you were sort of starting to see football was shifting. It was suddenly becoming a game for the family, a game that, you know, you could comfortably take your children to watch. You could, you know, you could go with your wife or your girlfriend. It was coming out of those, you know, the dark days, if you like, of the 80s, of the hooliganism, of the, of the stadium disasters. Um and it was just, it was football and technical for me. It was the beginning of what you see football as today. And that, that's why I put the World Cup to change the game. Like a lot of people said to me, how does it, how did it change the game? It's like, well, to me, it, it, it kicked the doors open. USA 94 kicked the doors open on, you know, football is, is a true global, you know, global power. Like in the eighties, you know, if you, if people asked, oh, what do you do at the weekend? Oh, I go to football. Oh, well, you're a football hooligan. Do you go, you know, fighting and things like no, no. I go, just go and watch the football with friends or family. Whereas it sort of changed, changed attitudes. It changed uh, the way people looked at the sport, the way people looked at fans. And it also changed from like the organizational standpoint, like to FIFA, it changed how they knew a tournament could be put on, how a tournament could be produced, and how a tournament could make money. You know, it was. It was the, the beginning of, you know, football as the global, true global power that it is today. 
Thank you. Yeah, I love that transition that you make from, you know, those dark days, you know, certainly in, the, in club and, and national teams, you know, from 90, you know, through to 94. So I'm going to I'm going to open up the floor here. You can either use the, the chat room, uh, physically raise your hand and wave at me or or put that yellow little waving hand. And uh, between Zach and I, we can monitor uh, uh, this room. George uh, from California. Yes, and I was actually in California during the 94 tournament um, and remember some of the, some of the matches uh, in those days. Um, so my question had to do with uh, the 1986 tournament, actually. So Tom mentioned thinking about the World Cups almost is um, events stacked on top of one another. And I was kind of curious about stretching the time back even further uh, to 86 when U.S. soccer placed a bid following Columbia's withdrawal. And I got a... Uh, I saw that you wrote a little bit about this in the first chapter of your book. And my sense was that there was a lot of acrimony after that bid failed. Did you get a sense that any of those old issues were still at play during the bid for the 94 tournament? I think any any doubts were sort of dismissed when they seen that the bid actually landed on the table. You know, the, the amount of... Um, depth and knowledge it was put into the bids rather than, like I said, in 86, there was pictures of, you know, stadiums which still had gridiron markings on, um, you know, obviously for the likes of for the likes of FIFA to them, you know, football is football is king, you know, they don't want to see they don't want to see pictures of, of, of pitches, it's, it's stadiums with the gridiron markings on, you know so I think when the bid came in front of um in front of FIFA, I think they, they sort of looked, they looked at it and thought, this is completely different to the bid we got uh, back in 86. Um, it's, you know, I think it was a case of they mean business this time. Um, and, it, and it's quite it's quite interesting to think that obviously at the time, USSF was a volunteer organisation and, you know, a lot of work needed doing, you know, behind the scenes to get the, to get the tournament up and running in the first place. But I think predominantly it was the, <clears throat> the the depth and the knowledge that had been put into the, uh, the the actual bid that made FIFA think that this this time you know that they they mean business. I'm going to follow up with with a kind of niche question, but as I read the book, continually bringing up the issue of climate, um, and how hot it was. Uh, in those various heat waves across the, the continental United States in the summer of 94. And now we have a, a winter World Cup, you know, because of the extreme heat. And then it's coming back, you know, in four years, uh, you know, to a potentially another hot environment, right? Uh, uh, how, how did you... Is that something, you know, that you weren't aware of in 94 that now with climate change, climate, I'm, I'm just curious how, how you, you know, made that a theme um, th throughout the course uh, of the book and, and how that impacted the football and, and maybe what can FIFA and others do in order to, you know, address that? Well, I was aware of, you know, the, the, the heat during the games when I was, Watching them back in '94, remember Ireland, the Ireland players with the white caps on during the um, during the national anthems, and Jack Charlton getting in trouble trying to get water onto the pitch and stuff. But 
I think it was important. It was important to mention it during the book, but I was sort of thinking, I don't want it. I don't want to labour the point too much. But most players I spoke to all spoke about, oh, it was hot. Oh, it was so hot. You couldn't breathe on the pitch, you know, and things like that. So I thought, you know, it was a key part of, of the story. And when people talk about the final, oh, it was dull, it was boring, it was Italy, Brazil, it should have been, you know, a game for the ages. But I think it was the end of an energy sapping month. There was a lot of travel involved. Uh, obviously, the heat, you know, it, it did have a huge, it did have a huge part to play and it had a huge effect on the final. It's just a shame that, you know, they couldn't have extended the tournament by another three days, give the players a bit more time off. And, you know, we might have seen a different final altogether, but obviously there was a strict timeline. They they had the players had to get back to the clubs for the you know, beginning of their domestic season. So um yeah, it's a, it's a it's a shame that the, I think the final paid the standard of football in the final paid a price really for the the heat. Um but yeah, it was something I didn't really want to labour on too much, but at the same time, I think it was a it was a key a key part to the to the story. You know, even some of the the African teams, even they were you know they were struggling. And it was a different type of heat. It was you know they really they really struggled as well. You know, so I think it did have a it did have a big it did have a big part to play in in the tournament. So I yeah I did have to keep sort of um, mentioning it throughout the book. And and it it, it made me think um, that for the integrity of the competition, for the safety of the players, why don't you play it at the optimal time locally? I think the game can survive. The tournament can survive that. You know, people are going to get up anyway. They're going to structure their watch parties, you know, anyway. So, so maybe this is the time, this is the World Cup that you don't necessarily cater to the European market. Um, and the European TV market. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not saying we have to answer that now. I'm just saying I think that should be a point of discussion. Um, and, and your book just made me think about it in, in, in a new way. Uh, David has a question from upstate New York. Professor Kilpatrick. Hey, uh, yeah, thanks. And thanks, Matt, um, not only for the book, but, but for doing this today. Um, you mentioned a, a few moments ago about uh, how the the bid for uh, 94 showed a greater sense of professionalism than say um, 86 and there might have been some lessons learned but in the in the decade uh, before the World Cup launched of course uh, soccer was enjoying a lot of media coverage a lot of regular media attention particularly in in the my home market of New York um, and in 94, the, the sports pages were being very much dominated by the great run my beloved Rangers were making to finally lift the curse of my relative who burnt the garden lease and the cup. Uh, so that was nice to get that off the family's back. And of course, the Knicks were making a run that nearly made it. Um, but then it seemed like, the okay, we'd have a clear path to coverage for the beautiful game. Um, and then all of a sudden, OJ. Um, and I wondered if you could talk about um, then as much as this was a resounding success, and I don't think anybody can really dispute that. Um, and I, I would hope that the, I mean, when you read some of the material that was coming out in other countries, particularly the UK prior to it, the kind of cynical dismissal of, of any interest here, you know, I think we, I think we proved ourselves well, at least I, I believe we did, 
But in terms of media attention and the way to which we, it was competing with OJ coverage um, and to what degree that was happening here in the States and to what degree that, that may have been happening um, globally. I wondered if you could talk about that. Because when we, most Americans think back on 94, I think probably the, the number one thing that we think about is OJ. Yeah, well, I think over, certainly on, on UK shores, from my own personal um, experience, um, seeing OJ in the, in the newspapers and on TV, to me, it was, it was Nordberg out of the Naked Gun films. You know, I didn't know, I didn't know OJ Simpson as an athlete, as a college star, as a, you know, as a Heisman Trophy winner, as an NFL uh, star. So I think to a lot of people on, on this side of, of the uh, of the uh, ocean, I think it was a case of not so much bemusement, but sort of like he, he wasn't a household name here. Um, and again, I think that comes down to it's a pre-internet age. You know, the, the, it was the days before 24-hour news. You know, whereas if it was now, you know, if, if, if something like that was to happen now, it, it'd be a, a, a name... Of a, of, a, of a star, a star NBA player or an NFL player, people would know who he was now. Whereas here, people just knew him from from the, the Naked Gun films. Um, and there was even in my research, I found that there was journalists who were covering the tournament. They were saying like, "Who is he?" You know, there was US reporters were like, "Wow, OJ's gone on the run, and this and that's happened." And there was there was like European based journalists who were like, "Who is he?" Oh, it's OJ Simpson. <laughs> show him a picture and again it's like oh the guy from the naked gun it's like no he was you know he's a, he's a huge you know uh sports star but you know i think um again it comes down to like i said pre-internet age it was it was harder you know to to sort of cross cross over if you like um and i said from my own personal point of view i i didn't know him as a as a sports star um so i think from from our side, from from the UK side, it, I don't think it had that much of an impact um, on the coverage. But like I said, there was a definite sense of not so much that no one cared in this country, but because like England weren't in it, the, the media had to have a different angle, and their angle was, "Oh, the US don't know what they're doing. They're not a football country." They're going to split it into four quarters. They're going to be going to ab breaks every five minutes and showing vox pops of, you know, saying to people, oh, you're going to watch the World Cup. Oh, what is it? You know, and it was a bit of snobbery and sort of um, sneering cynicism from from the, the press in this country. Definitely, um, you know, that, that, oh, the US are trying to, they're trying to you know, steal, steal our, our game, you know, which is, which is absolutely ridiculous. And when you see how the game's gone now, it's a truly, it's a truly global game, and like Tom touched on the kickoff times and stuff, you know, it was all geared towards a European audience because, in FIFA's eyes, Europe was where football lived. That's you know where all the fans will be watching it from, you know. So we we have to sort of pander to those, but you know, I so said those days, those days are long gone now. Yeah, and I think that that uh, OJ influenced the the US performance. You know, interviewing. John Harks, John and Tony Miola were roommates and, and John is fixated on the OJ chase and they have to get to bed because they play in the morning because of the European kickoff time. So I think it was like an 11 o'clock, you know, kickoff and it was 
super hot. You know, Tab Ramos is saying it's like playing in a hot house, you know, greenhouse. And it, it was just, a, you know, miserable experience. So we have OJ, Heat, the media, you know, all into one. But uh, Peter, I know he was uh, uh, definitely around the 94 World Cup and, and involved. Uh, and then we'll go to Oswaldo uh, after that. Thank you, Tom. Uh, I was working for the Continental Indoor Soccer League at that uh, point and was fortunate enough to get uh, tickets to several games in Chicago and Los Angeles. In Chicago, I was at the opener, the first game, and indeed uh, um, uh, watched the OJ Chase afterwards at the Hilton Hotel at Kitty O'Shea's. And um, you know, during the game, I was with Pato Marhetic, the former Chicago Sting uh, Argentine star. Remember him speaking several languages in the crowd to people around him and translating. In Los Angeles, I was at the Escobar match, uh, sitting in a suite next to a boxer who I didn't know, but it turned out it was Oscar De La Hoya. And the anecdote I want to give, though, is one that I was not part of, was secondhand, but is important to U.S. soccer's future history as a result of this World Cup. Phil Anschutz, the man who, along with Lamar Hunt, single-handedly saved uh, professional soccer in this country, attended his first pro soccer game at the Rose Bowl, Brazil, Italy. The first match was the final. And it was 0-0 after regulation. And Phil said to Bob Sanderman, who was with him, said, it's 0-0, end of regulation, it's a tie. Let's go home. <laughs> Bob said, no, 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 there's going to be extra time and then penalties if it's still tied. And Phil said, now we have a plane to catch. Bob said to Phil, but it's your airplane. You can leave whenever you want. And Phil said, no, I've seen enough. Uh, this is a great sport. Uh, let's leave. So Phil Anschutz did not watch um, Brazil beat Italy in the final but he did see enough to fall in love with the sport or at least have enough faith in the sport to invest uh, so many millions of dollars that allowed Major League Soccer to exist. And then my question for you, uh, Matt, is what impact did, the, did soccer during the LA Olympics have on the 94 World Cup? I've you know, heard that you know, Allen's involvement on it was important. Uh, but did you dig into the LA Olympics uh, and how that affected the 94 World Cup? I think the, the key thing to the LA Olympics was how many people actually bought tickets to watch the football games. You know, that is what really opened FIFA's eyes to the fact that, oh, hang on a minute, we have actually got an audience here. Um, and speaking to Alan Rothenberg and Hank Steinbrecher, you know, they said that huge grassroots uh, soccer in, in the States, it was had to translate that into ticket sales. And I think when FIFA seen how many people were actually coming out to watch the games at the LA Olympics, that was when it was almost as if, you know, a light bulb moment where they thought this could actually, this could actually um, be, be done. And also the involvement between Alan Rothenberg, I think it was key for FIFA to get him involved in the um, organize, organizing it. Uh, because they'd seen sort of how they'd seen him at first hand how good he was at 
um, it putting the, the football on during the um, during the LA Olympics. So yeah, it was. I think the, the key thing is ticket sales, ticket sales, getting people into the stadiums, seeing full stadiums in the in the US for, for, for football games. I think to FIFA that was a huge a huge shock. It, it, it's sort of like similar now when the NFL games come to the UK, seeing you know the NFL scene full, you know Wembley Stadium full. Oh, we, we thought it'd be half. No, there's, there's a huge market for, you know, for people to come and watch games. So, yeah, it, it's basically all come down to that. People coming out of the houses, buying tickets, watching the games. Great. Thank you. Thanks. And before we, we go to Oswaldo, I, I've noticed this NFL phenomenon on the tube, uh, the underground. I'll be coming back from, from a soccer match and you'll see everyone in there, whether Green Bay Packers or New York football giants. And I'm assuming they're American and I'll engage them. And they're from Germany. They're from Sweden or, or they're here from England. So, I mean, they definitely have an, an international following in London, you know, being a crossroads of sorts. People are coming from across Europe to, to go to those uh, gridiron matches. Oswaldo. Yes. Uh, before my question, let, let me just say that uh, you guys make me feel very old because the first World Cup I remember is 1958 Sweden. And the first one I watched on TV was 66 England. So uh, anyway, let's go to the question. Um, one of the things that really makes me kind of mad these days is uh, talking about Qatar and uh, everybody or everybody or the 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 um, uh, the issue being being mentioned repeatedly is that this is going to be a great World Cup because the stadiums are all there. The two most distant ones are 18 kilometers away and, uh, you know, every, all the fans will be in one place. Um, so I haven't read the book um, and... Um, and so I don't know whether um, this issue is addressed in, 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 in the book, but the US 94 was the first time in which a World Cup was played over four, uh, four hours time zone. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, that had never happened before. And I doubt that in, in, uh, in Russia uh, was the same because I, I think uh, the two uh, furthest city were uh, Leningrad and the Ekaterinburg, and I don't think they are they are uh, uh, more than an hour away, a zone, um, uh, our our time zone away. So um, since you interviewed a lot of um, uh, uh, players, um, you know how was this issue of having to transfer for games not only north. Uh, South, which obviously had happened in other countries that held the World Cup, uh, but also East-West um, uh, affected. Uh, because I, I have the feeling that this idea that you don't have to move is overplayed in, in the wild attempt that Qatar is doing to justify uh, uh, you know, it, its uh, selection. Um, was that an issue? Um, um, and, and if so, in, in which way? I think as the tournament progressed, I think the traveling did start to take its toll on the players. I think early on, though, there's probably just a sense of excitement. You know, with the World Cup, we're on a private jet with all our teammates. You know, we're flying off to play in a packed stadium, you know, in front of a global audience. Um, but I know that the, for like in the third, fourth place playoff, I think Bulgaria had to travel like 3,000 miles 
to, to play to play their game. And I think by the time they got there, it was just like we just want to, you know, we've had enough now. We just want to go home. So I think as the tournament progressed, I think it did it did sort of take its toll on players. I think now you look back at you know like conditioning of players. You know, in, I know in club football, managers don't like the players living too far away from training grounds because they don't like them travelling. You know, it can put uh, strain on muscles and it can contribute to injuries and stuff. But I think back in back then, it wasn't so so big a thing. But I think with it being such a new thing for players, they weren't used to doing that much travelling. I don't think they were that. They don't think it affected them that much. Certainly early on in the tournament. But I think the teams that got through to the latter stages, I think. Uh, Certainly, like I said, certainly Bulgaria when they got to the third, fourth place playoff, they they were they were ready to they were ready just to go go three thousand miles the other way and go home, you know. So yeah, I think the travelling and and as we touched on before, the the heat and the temperatures, I think they were two two huge factors. Um, how much impact they had, I don't think we could we could say for definite, but I'm sure I'm sure it did have a, a huge part to play, maybe as much as a part as the the heat did. We're going to pass the, the microphone to Derek Lechte. You're going to have to unmute yourself. And uh, Derek is uh, coming from uh, California, been involved in soccer for, for many decades uh, out that way. Thank you very much, uh, Matt. First of all, where can we get your book? Uh, it's available. I'm not sure if it's available in the States just yet. Um, I think it's available next month. I think 15th of December, you'll be able to get it like Barnes and Noble, Amazon, things like that. Uh, you can get it on Kindle. Um, you can get an ebook version of it. Um, but I spoke to my publisher about getting it released a bit earlier in the States uh, ahead of the World Cup. But I think with um, the way the world is at the moment, with getting getting things shipped over to you know certain places and things, it's it's taking a bit longer than usual. So. I think it's going to be available in shops in the states. I think it's fifteenth of December, uh, but like I said you can get you can get any an ebook version of it um, through Pitch Publishing's website. Uh, they've got some links on there. Thank you very much for making this effort um, because the for me personally, uh, the World Cup was the fulfillment of, of a dream which started with me when I was a teenager in Santa Barbara, California, playing soccer in high school, and. Uh, so I've had the privilege of being able to be involved with six World Cups. And uh, although after 1982, frankly, I gave up because I felt the game was going downhill. Uh, <clears throat> but um, in any case, uh, we, uh, I wonder if your book has any emphasis on, on the labor of love that this was for soccer uh, volunteers who worked on the World Cup. Uh, we started our effort here in San Francisco. I was the executive director of what was called the San Francisco Bay Task Force 94, which actually was the bid committee for the games at Stanford. And it took five years until we finally saw the final results of all our work. And um, so not to say that we didn't think it was worth it. It certainly was because not only after we were the bid committee, we became the host committee, and then we became the legacy committee. And I'm not sure how many uh, venues actually had a legacy committee. We were supposed to get $1 million from the organization to promote 
soccer for underprivileged youth in the San Francisco Bay Area for, as a result of our efforts in putting on the games at Stanford. Unfortunately, uh, Mr. Havalanji came to visit the stadium at Stanford and said, oh no, this has to be done. So we got reduced to $500,000. But in any case, that $500,000 was dispersed over time to kids and underprivileged kids in the Bay Area for the development of soccer. Full cir circle with all of this. And uh, again, I'm a, yeah, you are memorializing uh, <laughs> this tremendous event, which was an incredible success for the United States. It was the most financially successful uh, World Cup at that time in history. And uh, speak well for the fact that we will have and will have and do have and will continue to have first-class soccer here in America. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think that when I first started looking into the the structure of the book, I, I, I was quite sort of adamant that I didn't just want to do a day-by-day -day account. I want to talk at the World Cup as a whole, as from the World Cup being put on to it being, sorry, from the World Cup being um, the bid being put together, the bid being accepted and the World Cup being put on uh, before the games had even kicked off. And speaking to the likes of Jim Trecker and, and Tom Meredith, you sort of realise what a huge part the you know the volunteers had to play in getting the bid on the table, getting the bid accepted. And personally, that that whole the whole story from the, the bid process through to the tournament being put on, I think you could probably write a book just about that. You know, just about that part of the of the story. Um, and people have said to me, oh, it's interesting to read the early parts of how the World Cup was put on and the bid. And I thought, well, it's such a key part of the story to me, you know, that there was a group, a group of volunteers who were willing to, you know, put all their efforts, all their energy and all their spare time into, into getting this World Cup on. And like I said, to, to look at what the World Cup is now, the amount of people that must be involved now in getting a World Cup on, you know, top top you know companies that are involved in producing world cups now whereas back then it was you know a, a gang of volunteers who passion and love for the game you know that's what basically won won the the us the rights to, to host a world cup thank you for that um you mentioned pitch publishing i know there's at least one other person on the call who's had experience working with the folks at, at pitch publishing uh, I'm just I'm holding another World Cup, you know, book that I'm sure you're familiar with. This is 82, 94. So it's an interesting way um, to, to look at, you know, soccer history through the lens of a tournament. Could you tell us a little bit, maybe nuts and bolts of that experience? Because I know there are some prospective authors here, whether they go to the pitch publishing route or or, or another route. Um, maybe just some reflections on, on that process, because a lot of the times that that uh, doesn't get talked about and, and it, it's such an important part of it. Yeah, you know, I've read quite a few uh, books that Pitch Publishing had, had released and when I came to to do the book, I, I sort of pinpointed them as a publisher that I thought would, would go for my idea. Um, you know, that they'd published similar sort of titles before. Um, so yeah, so I basically went on the website, looked at how to submit a pitch to them. It took probably probably took about two or three weeks to get it all down and you had to do your chapter breakdowns. You had to put 
you know, even reasons why you wanted to write the book, you know, which I think is important because like I've said before, it's, you've got to be passionate about the subject. You can't just, oh, I'll write a book about oh, that, you know, do a bit of research and write it because I think that will come across on the pages if you're not sort of passionate about it. So, yeah, put the um, submission together, took about three weeks, and then it was a matter of days before I got a reply saying, yeah, brilliant, go for it. Will, will you be speaking to, um, will you be getting new information? Will you be speaking to people that were involved in the World Cup? And at this point, I had no one lined up. I had, I had no interviewers lined up. And um, I just said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll be speaking to, I'll be speaking to people. <laughs> uh, sort of like, fingers crossed that I will be able to. Um, and then yeah, I was just sort of just sort of left alone then to, to write. Um, checked in every now and again. Um, sent some pictures in to uh, a cover designer and sort of like an idea of what I wanted the cover to look like. Um, but yeah, generally from that moment on, was just left alone. I had the uh, submission deadline, and um, yeah, it was just sort of left alone to to, to write really, which was, which was good. You know, didn't have anyone sort of breathing down your neck saying, how are you getting on? How many pages have you wrote? Or we want to see this. We want to see chapters and things. It was just sort of, you know, they put faith, they put faith in me to, to just crack on and, and, and write it. So yeah, it was, um, it was, an, it was an enjoyable and very surreal experience. Um, like I said, speaking to some of the, you know, some of the people I spoke to in regards to interviews and stuff, it was, uh, yeah, it's a pretty surreal experience when, I'm saying to my wife, oh, can you just um, you just turn the TV down? So I'm just going to speak to Thomas Ravelli. Um, you know, can you can you tell the kids not to come to come upstairs because I'm on a call with Brian Roy? You know, things like that. It's just uh, when you look back now, it's just bizarre. Um, you know, to think that I, I got to speak to these these guys. But yeah, uh, from the from the writing side of things and dealing with the publishers, it was um, yeah, it was pretty pretty seamless. Um, all I'd say is if you're putting put a submission into any any publishers, really sort of sell yourself, you know, sell your writing experience, sell your passion. You know, you've really got to put across why you want to write this book and, and why it's going to be worth reading. Great uh, advice there. I know a lot of the times we have these questions and we just don't ask that. Um, so great to get your experience. The obvious kind of conclusion question is, were you able to justify your subtitle? I mean, is it really the World Cup that that changed the game? Maybe in, in, in summation, you know, make a case how, well, your book makes the case, right? But, you know, how would you sum that up, you know, especially for, for people who don't have access to the book yet? I, got, I sort of alluded to before, it's the, for me, it was the World Cup that it was the beginning of football today. As we know it, it was the true beginning of the, the the true global game of the you know before that World Cup, you know players through you know I had no players through my sticker albums and things like that. You wouldn't get to see players on on a you know on a daily or weekly basis. And I think that was the last World Cup where that happened. I think from from like France '98 onwards, it truly was a global game. It was Champions League, like to the the FIFA computer games. Like I said, my, my kids play those games now and they know, you know, I could ask my kids oh, who plays left back for Atletico Madrid and they'd be able to tell me like that, you know. it's the It was the beginning of the globalisation of the game, the commercialisation of the game. You know, I spoke to some people and I said, well, it's not necessarily been changed in, a, in you know, for the better. Some people would argue it's been, it's it's worse with the, 
like I said, the amount of money that that swashes around in the game now. Um, but for me, it was the it was the, the birthplace of modern football for me. Uh, USA '94. It's shown, like I said, it's shown FIFA how World Cup could be put on, how um, how they can make a ton of money out of um, out of World Cups, but. If you look at each country, you know, it was it changed. I think it changed the game in the States. You know, I think if if USA 94 hadn't have been a success, if the national team would have just crashed and burnt in the um in the group stages, you know, maybe maybe that would have had a knock-on effect in the interest of the game. Um, obviously with the MLS starting um in 96. So I think, you know, if you look at it not just as a whole, if you look at how it affected each, you know, each country as well. I think you know you could say that, especially for the for the states. I think it changed changed the game in in your country, um, and obviously we'll see in twenty twenty six. You know it will be a completely different spectacle to ninety four. But I think without ninety four, there, there might not be a tournament in twenty twenty six. Wonderful. Well, on behalf of uh, the society, I want to thank Matthew Evans for for joining us, uh, the author of uh, the recent. Uh, book US 94 and the World Cup that changed the game. It will be out December 15th in the United States. You can get an ebook uh, through the Pitch Publishing website. Make sure you get it. Great contribution to a World Cup that we all hold near and dear to our hearts. We enjoyed our time talking about uh, the 94 World Cup. So go out and get the book and thanks so much.